Welcome to another podcast from Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club of California. Get tickets to upcoming live or online events at commonwealthclub.org slash Inforum. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at InforumSF. And now here's our program. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Commonwealth Club. We are here today to discuss Mike Evans's terrific new book, Hangry, a startup journey about his life uh, founding the delivery site Grubhub. I know that that has been a source of much joy and consternation to all of us that are curled up on our couches getting food from the app um, for years now. But just as important as the service it provides is the story about his life Um, his work with his co-founders, how the company grew into a household name, and also how it changed most of our relationships with the way goods move in cities and restaurants interact with online delivery platforms. My name is Vikram Iyer. I'm a member of the board of the Commonwealth Club's Inform Division, and I could not be more delighted to be here moderating this discussion with Mike, not just to hear about his honest and, and truly quite hilarious take about his startup journey in this book, but also because I once served as the vice president of another food delivery platform born right here in San Francisco known as Postmates. So I'm really excited to kick off this conversation with Mike Evans, who helped really catalyze an entire food on demand revolution. Um, Mike, thanks thanks for being here. Well, well, we're gonna get to you in one second, just a, a note of programming at the top. For most of you who may not be aware, the Commonwealth Club's weekly radio programming is actually the oldest radio show to be carried across the U.S. on public radio, dating back to 1924. As a kid growing up in the Bay Area, I, I heard Commonwealth Club programs driving around, tuned into um, our NPR affiliate, KQED. So the fact that these conversations continue to take place both virtually and in person nearly 100 years later really just illustrates how powerful um, this forum tends to be to have conversations with with founders like Mike um, and decades later even navigate a pandemic. So I just wanted to start by thanking the extraordinary Commonwealth Club staff for the work they do to deliver this awesome programming day to day. Um, And of course, while today's conversation is virtual, we have a whole host of fall and winter programming that's in person downtown at the Commonwealth Club, um, which you can find more information at at www.commonwealthclub.org. And of course, if you're following along live in the YouTube chat and you have questions for Mike, you have questions for me, you have questions about the space, please enter your questions in that chat box as we will get through them throughout the program. All right, let's get into it. Um, Mike Evans, uh, you, you hail from Chicago, Illinois, as the folklore goes. You founded Grubhub uh, in, in your spare bedroom, grow it, grew it with your co-founders into a multi-billion dollar online food delivery platform. It's not only a household name, it spanned Super Bowl commercials. It's reinvented the relationship of our downtown um, independent restaurant operators with how they think about selling all of us food. Um, and shortly after the IPO, you actually um, exited, rode your bike across the country, founded another company, Fixer.com, that um, we'll get into and actually is in the handy person space. But you reflecting on your, your, your starting of Grubhub, you actually founded this separate company much more intentionally as a reflection of the values of commerce and not just the, the overall bottom line profit sales of commerce that can often be the case. Um, so I, I am curious that 
as someone that grew this brand from your bed boom with the support of friends, with the support of your, your loving partner, which you talk about in great deal, great detail in the, in the book, um, in that entire story, Grubhub has acquired companies. It's grown into a brand. It's gone public. It's been acquired. It's been subject to debates across the treatment of gig workers, charges to restaurants. It's been a, a key tool to communities during the pandemic. And, and uh, throughout all of this, um, I want to start with what actually prompted you to found this company? What, what actually prompted you to first start cataloging all that online information um, that brought us the, the modern version of Grubhub? But maybe you can take us back to the early days of how all this got off and running in the first place. So I wanted a pizza. That's that's it. That's the story. Uh, so I think that's a wrap. I think we can wrap it up right there. No, but in all seriousness, um, no, I, I did want a pizza and getting a pizza was hard. Uh, and it was hard in a way that nobody agreed with me that it was hard. Like you had to call on the phone, like you had to look up the restaurants that might be in your area in the yellow pages. And then you had to call on the phone and you had to read the phone over, over the, you know, over the, read the order over the phone, read your credit card. Somebody was writing it down on the other side to charge it. And so those all seemed like really terrible things to me in terms of like, it was difficult. Um, and so, uh, and so, I the this, the start of the business was it was just a delivery um, information platform for my house. Like it didn't even have like an address search for any function. I just started gathering all the information for delivery boundaries and delivery information, and then the menus uh, just for my just for my house, so I could see who delivered to me. So the very start of the whole thing was about discovery. Uh, it was about finding the restaurants to deliver to you, finding information about them. None of that was online. It was all it was all just in alphabetical order in the yellow pages. Um, and then later on, it became an ordering platform um, as I realized that the discovery piece was not uh, really not enough to differentiate and not enough to really change consumer behavior. And also uh, really, it was just a lot easier to charge per order rather than a than a, than a, a, a subscription fee. And so that's how it started um, in 2002. And uh, I mean, it, it's very simple when you when you summarize it like that. But as you look back through the totality of it, um, there are a lot of different narratives that that come out through online food ordering. To some, it might just be a, a lazy Sunday. Maybe you're hungover. Maybe you're just trying to to watch some Netflix and get a burrito delivered to your couch. To others, um, it really did shape and reshape the contours of retail in America. You know, in uh, you published your book um, recently in in November of uh, 2017. Um, the Trump administration was actually on the heels of issuing a, a monthly jobs number, and it showed that retail sales were on decline in America, even as we we're gearing up for the holiday season, something that was relatively new because online e-commerce giants like Amazon were sort of eating um, the, your or my desire to go into a brick and mortar store and, and offer sales locally. Um, it was also starting to change at a time where you talk about your own mom having to hold down two or three jobs and cook dinner at the end of the day. And as you think about families that either needed to find a way to support them through means, through taking up online delivery, or by fastening the, the pace at which they could get food delivered to home to have dinner for their families, they're starting to reinvent the dynamic with um, also how families interacted with the platform. And so there's a couple of different narratives you can splice in terms of the totality of what Grubhub did. It could help independent restaurant operators compete in the era of online everything. It could help families stay afloat when they have busy lives. Um, but when you started to see that narrative change, 
from just pizza and getting hungry and wanting to, to take what you saw in the analog world and put it in a digital compendium. Walk us through what the evolution, not just of the product, but some of the values were as you saw how it could actually remake the geography and movement of food in cities. That's a lot. <laughs> so sure. let me see if we can unpack some of that. Uh, yeah, like it, it, that's that's not that's not how startups work. So we don't you don't think about the totality of of an e- economy and and like macroeconomic numbers when you're starting a startup. Like the the evolution happens sort of moment by moment, and and what happens is, um, you know, it's it started as it started as solving one problem for one person, myself, right? And then it became, and, and I talk a lot about this in the book, and and. Then it became like, oh, I don't have to have a job where I'm working for another person. I can go and create this thing where, um, where I like can earn a living doing this. Great, I can pay off my school debt. I had 260 grand in school debt, and so I can pay that off. And so I'm, I'm, I. It starts with this idea that I can make a single thing better, and and then it gets a little bit better. It, it transitions from a a uh, a menu guide to a, an online ordering like delivery platform. Right. And fast forward a few years, there's like 10,000, there's, there's a few thousand restaurants on the business. We've moved from, uh, we've moved from sim- simply information display to, to online ordering. We're charging a transactional amount and it really starts to grow. And I, and I come to realize that I'm going to overshoot my goal. So one of the things I talk a lot about in the book is the importance of a personal definition of success. And, um, that the def- my definition at first was just to just to pay off my school debt, and then I started to exceed that, and I was like, okay, well that that goal doesn't track anymore. I need something bigger. And what eventually ended up being the goal was I wanted to level the playing field for independent restaurants against big chains, and that became my goal for the business. The business had a separate goal, which was related but not exactly the same, and that was making delivery better. The experience of getting delivery was really bad. Um, there's a really high error rate. It's something like 14% of all orders have some sort of a problem with, with, um, with the order. You get high iced tea instead of high iced coffee, or it's, it's cold or it's late or whatever. So, and so the evolution went from, went from a, a small sort of goal to a bigger goal. And, um, and, and it's important because as, as you start to scale, as you're running a business starts to scale that actually like has a huge impact on on independent restaurants, you have an obligation to like, to do right by them. And so that like that, it, as the business got really big, and as we hit 30,000, 40,000, 50,000, 80,000 restaurants, independent restaurants, at, at the time of the IPO, there were no chains. It, it was 80,000 independent restaurants. And I think maybe 50 of them were chains, like 50, 50 locations in total. And so it really what did level the playing field. And in terms of like extending, and so so what starts out as as a micro thing, you're just trying to change consumer behavior in one way. At scale, changes a society. And so you know the point. One of the main points in the book is be careful what you ask for because you might get it. If you if you go if you start out to change society, you might actually like do it. So be intentional about the change that it is that you want to create in the world. And so you know, fast forward all the way to pandemic, obviously. Like it had a huge, there was a huge accelerant, but it was like the fourth accelerant in the history of the business. You know, the, the first one was probably the iPhone when the iPhone app came out. Um, and then the second one was probably the, probably the housing, the housing crisis. You know, we kept restaurants in business during the housing crisis. 
Um, and so there was, there's sort of, there's when a business exists for a long time, it goes through these macroeconomic cycles. And if it's at scale, it, it impacts them. It impacts the customers in them. And so that's, that's the way it worked. I didn't start out thinking about this and I kind of wish I had, I kind of wish that like I had thought about some of this stuff earlier on. Cause I, I probably could have encoded some of that concern and some of that, um, some of those values in the DNA of the company earlier, if I had done that. Yeah. And it's, it's super fair to, 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 you know, push back on the premise of that and say that you know, no founder is standing, sitting there thinking about kind of global economic impacts or like the long tail of what happens with this product at scale downstream. You kind of got to build, ship, build, ship and iterate um, as you yeah. reflect on in the book. I am curious, though, to to reflect on kind of this conclusion that you just named that you wish you had proceeded with some intention. Obviously, you didn't have a crystal ball as to how things would scale and how things would change, but some intention from a values perspective or what the company wanted to be known for perspective. Um, and that's personified by the fact that you more recently started a B Corp, which we'll get to in a second. But but I want to dig into these values-based approaches to how you thought or wish the company could grow. And you specifically um, have a language in the book, very early on in the book, in which you say, it turns out, and this is a quote, I might have created a Frankenstein. Will Grubhub stay true to its roots? Will it become a necessary evil for restaurants? Will it actually level the playing field for mom and pop restaurants against big chains? Obviously, if we look at numbers, like you mentioned, 80,000 independent restaurants versus you know some smaller amount of chains on the heels of the IPO, that's really great stuff to be proud of as a company. I'm curious if you could name or walk us through some examples where the ethics of Mike Evans versus the ethics of Grubhub and what it needed to do to scale maybe started to diverge a little bit or resulted in you writing that sentence. Yeah, I think um, it, when you like look at like, let me give you some examples. So look at eBay, right? eBay has a take rate where they charge customers. I don't know what, I don't know exactly what the rate is, but somewhere between eight and 12%, maybe a little bit less than that in some cases. And then on the other end of the extreme, you have Ticketmaster, which is, which charges an exorbitantly high fees and everybody hates, right? Because of that. And there's something embedded in it. it and on one hand, it's just a number and it's just business. On the other hand, there's something, there's, there's a value associated with that. There's, there's um, to what degree, you know, is an entity that's charging a take rate that high, really thinking about the longevity and profitability of the customers that they serve. And so, you know, my, my one of my arguments is that um, that the right thing to do is do right by your customers over the long term and not maximize profits over the short term, which is not what Wall Street wants to hear. Right. Wall Street wants profitability, profits to go up next quarter. And that's all that matters. And so it, there's a there's it's not just the divergence between what I wanted for the company and what the company wanted. There's a divergence between what the company wants and what its owners want, right? What the shareholders want, and it's one of the real challenges associated with going public. But there are companies that say, you know what, we're in this for the long haul for our customers, and they they plant that flag in the ground and they drive long term value, which drives drives long term differentiation. In the absence of that differentiation the the challenge becomes that that everybody just starts competing by spending more on consumer acquisition and and that and that isn't bringing value to anybody but google and facebook right so um and so i, I it's not just like a pie in the sky like my ethics versus the company ethics it's about long term differentiation and and margin by serving your customers yeah and and that's got to be particularly challenging um when you've got three different customers, so to speak, 
right? Because you not only have the shareholders when you're public or, you know, uh, investors when you're private, but when you think about the Grubhub, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but um, it's a three-sided marketplace where you have the customers of you or I sitting on our couch, maybe getting something. You have the customer of the restaurant owner operator that is using the platform to generate a sale. And you technically have the customer of the driver or the delivery worker that might be looking at Grubhub to, to earn extra income on the side flexibly. Kind of curious, when you think of the customer, how, how did Grubhub sort of prioritize their different pieces or was it always attention to your point? There's another customer too, which is the employees at the company. So from my perspective, right, that you're creating a good product for each of those people. And this is, this is not rocket science, nor am I the first person to talk about this. What I'm really talking about is thinking about stakeholders instead of thinking about shareholders, right? Thinking about things. And there's yet another entity, which is um, the, the communities in which you operate, the actual like cities that you operate in, right? All of those entities are stakeholders that you have to think about and, and think about where am I creating value in the long term and how am I managing trade-offs between them? And am I doing it in a way that uh, really does right by by all parties and, and not just for shareholder value in the short term, right? Here's, here's, I'm going to say something that's almost blasphemy from a capitalist perspective. Companies don't exist to make money. Companies exist to create value for customers and they coincidentally happen to make money as a result of it. And so um, when you bring a, a group of people together and they get liability protection and they get all of these benefits from the government, you know, what, what are they doing in return? Why do we as a society let those companies exist? And this is, this is part of the path why I went down the path of doing the B Corporation, because a lot of this is codified in, in public benefit corporations and what, and what, B, uh, and what B Corp, um, what, what the certification body thinks about. Um, and, and it's really important when you're talking about a corporate, like a group of people, um, that those values are defined amongst the people, that, that the group of you, and you can't really do this when you're at a thousand people. It's, it's too late, Right. But it can't really just be one the founder's beliefs by fiat. You gotta get like twenty-five to hundred people together and come to agreement on what your values are, what you believe, what your mission statement is. And then if you encode that, you can resist the temptations for short-term benefit. And uh, and you can focus on long-term differentiation and long-term benefit. So um yeah, I mean that's like that's the heart of what my argument in the book is be intentional about what what do you, how you define success and be intentional about you know, businesses, companies, they're huge levers for social change, whether you want them to be or not. And so, so you should be explicit about what the, what you want that change to be, not just focused on shareholder return. For those of you who are just joining us, we're, we're of course talking with Mike Evans, uh, founder of Grubhub and the author of the amazingly hilarious, hilarious and incisive book, Hangry, A Startup Journey. Um, Mike, you know, I, I wanted to, I want to kind of ask you about something that Grubhub as a corporation famously said, um, I don't know if this is pre IPO or post, but it was in a letter to, um, shareholders, I believe, um, or those that had an ownership stake of some capacity that when Grubhub examined the marketplace, um, you know, after you first had that hankering for pizza and decided to start coding in your kitchen and then everything that took out from there, um, there was a catalytic moment in which you kickstarted or opened a door for a new industry, but much later on, the DoorDashes, the Postmates, my former employer, the Uber Eats of the world start sprouting up, certainly Instacart on the grocery side. And there was something that Grubhub said to its shareholders that stuck with me, which was that 
The customer base for all of these apps, even if we had shifted to an on-demand, we need it with our fingertips kind of society, was always a little promiscuous, that there wasn't necessarily a ton of stickiness or brand loyalty of I'll always go to Grubhub, I'll always go to DoorDash or what have you. And, and you were just talking about brand differentiation, and you were talking about it in the context of stakeholder awareness of, and making sure that how the customer sees the app, sometimes it can just be transactional. Other times it could be seen in terms of its treatment and support for all those stakeholders that you talked through. And I was curious if you could just um, kind of reflect on either what you saw at Grubhub or just in terms of the sector writ large, in terms of brand differentiation, what were things that on-demand delivery platforms did to make it seem as though they were truly there for the independent restaurant or they were truly there for the worker or they were truly there for the customer that you thought worked well or you'd like to see more of? Yeah, I, I remember when the when the company issued that statement. It was it was about a year and a half after I had left the company after the IPO. And uh, I could not disagree more. That statement dry, drove me up a wall because... It was not my experience at Grubhub that customers um, were disloyal, like that they that they were that they were switching between platforms. And just to be clear, in two thousand six or two thousand seven, when when online ordering was really starting to get going, there was at least a hundred competitors. It, Grubhub, like the com- competition that you're talking about, it didn't just show up after the IPO. There was Order Up and Quick Order and and a bunch of other companies, right? And then later on, there was there was another whole wave of them, that, and Groupon got into online ordering, and Living Social got into on, online ordering, and uh, Delivery Hero in Europe was thinking about launching in the United States. Like the, the competition was extreme from the start because people kept talking about how there's no real significant barriers to entry to offering online ordering. Like once we created that innovation, it was like okay, it's going to take what three months for somebody to copy this, and we knew it, and so we differentiated by customer service, and so. The experience in 2012 with Grubhub was, um, and I talk about this idea in the book as well, that like the, with such a high error rate in, in, in deliveries, because at the time the restaurants were doing a lot of the deliveries themselves and mo- almost all the deliveries themselves as opposed to, as opposed to a driver base. Um, it's really important that you solve the problems for the customer. You have to learn how to apologize as a business. And an apology is not, I'm sorry you feel that way. That's an accusation. And an apology is not, hey, like we messed up. Here's $5. An apology, a good apology from a company is, hey, we messed up. Here's $5. And I'm going to look into what happened and make sure it doesn't happen to you again or another customer. And you solve the problems before their problems for the customer. And there's lots of ways to do that. There's You can use best practices. You can share best practices with, with the restaurants in this case. You can statistically drive orders towards the restaurants that have a better experience for customers and drive higher repeat purchase rates. And Grubhub forgot that. And it drove me crazy because we won the market by having the best customer service. And then after the IPO, that team got downsized and customer service got sidelined. And then suddenly there's this line about customers being promiscuous. Of course they are. You're not differentiated. Like, why would you ever lose that differentiated point? And so, like, I feel strongly that that actually, even looking forward, like, which of those three companies, which of DoorDash and Uber Eats and Grubhub are going to win the market? It's going to be the one that chooses to differentiate as opposed to spending the most money 
on Facebook and Google and outdoor advertising. And that's going to mean the company that designs and delivers the best product for restaurants and for drivers. Because if you take care of them, they'll take care of the customer at home. At some point, one of those three companies is going to innovate very hard in that direction. And it's going to win the market because you can't win by outspending on on marketing. You just can't do it. And actually, Grubhub may have actually already sort of started in that direction with the Amazon partnership that they did. It's dangerous to partner with such a big entity. But, you know, it, it does start to bring back some of the loyalty. But ultimately, that's a biz dev deal. It's not... It's not a, a differentiation for the customer value. So I feel strongly that this is like play offense. Like yeah. don't like this. Oh, customers are they're 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 not loyal. Like that's not a business strategy. That's a complaint. So, I mean, I think play offense is the answer to that question. That, that's, that's a very fair point. And, you know, one thing that you you prescribe to to anyone um, that has a company of their own, or certainly that is in this sector, is to really create value, right? Not just profits, create value for your customers. And when you mentioned the restaurants and the drivers, just to focus on the restaurants um, briefly, um, you have both in the book and um, in, in interviews that you've given about uh, this book, uh, you, you kind of talk about almost uh, poetically the, the role that the stories of independent restaurateurs actually mean to you, both in the journey of Grubhub initial sales, but also just storylines of certain businesses that were struggling with their own brick and mortar operations that were able to boost their sales because of the Grubhub platform and how critical um, that kind of storytelling was not just in the path to an IPO, but even into the path of some of the advocacy that the company probably does on, on the policy side of the equation. And so I was just kind of curious if you could reflect on um, the language that you use in the book that, that you fear, which is the necessary evil, that once upon a time, these platforms were able to extend sales for these companies in, in other corners of the town, as well as downtown. And during the pandemic, there was much more of a national discussion or debate as to whether these were necessary evils for these platform, for, for the restaurants and whether the take rate was too high. Just sort of given everything that you've seen to date well after exiting just kind of curious if you could share with us what you'd wish to see was the better relationship between restaurants and on-demand platforms. So that way they could recognize a symbiotic relationship as opposed to a potentially adversarial one. Yeah. When you, what I'm talking about is the prisoner's dilemma, right? When, when you get so many orders from one of these platforms that you can't choose to not be on, it's not an option to not be on the platform and therefore it can charge as much as possible. And it's a prisoner's dilemma because you know, in the, in the classical definition of that term, if all the restaurants decide to, to, to hop off of the platform, they'll all do better. But if any one of them does, then, then they all, then, then that rest, that restaurant will suffer. And, you know, when, when San Francisco rolled out its, um, its maximum fees and New York and Chicago did the same thing. And they said 15%, I was like, what an opportunity, because what they basically just did is they set the, they set the price for all of the competition. So all you have to do is come in at 14% and deliver a product at that level. And nobody else is going to do it. Why, like, why fight? Why fight that fight? Why fight with the cities on that level? And some of it is also like using a, using a gig economy approach is can be, I actually think it's very expensive. Um, it, you know, there, there's, there's challenges in the business. It's not an easy business. It's, it's crowded space. Um, but I, I think this idea that never release a product unless it makes a restaurant more likely to survive next year, like, like they have to be, you know, the, the attrition rate for restaurants is like 30%, like a lot of restaurants close every year. 
your products as if your customers are, are, are restaurants and you're trying to get them new business, then you should be able to measure whether or not they're more likely to be in business as a result of using their product. And by the way, I think that's actually true still in, in, for all three of those companies that are sort of at the, at the forefront of, um, of the space. But like lean in on that, lean in on this idea that, that if you treat your customers right, they're loyal to you. Right. And, um, and so I think there's an opportunity. I, and I think one of the companies can do it. I actually think Grubhub has the best chance at it because it has the highest percentage of independent restaurants, at least based on the data I've seen. I don't have all of the data for it, um, but that's the roots of the company. And so that's my hope is that, is that I, obviously I want Grubhub to win that fight. Obviously. I mean, if you worked at one of the competitors, you want that company to win the fight, but actually, and, and I think you, you raise a really important point where if you're valuing the central stakeholder, in this case, the restaurant, independent restaurant, um, the gig worker um, from good products that keep them thriving, that keep them upwardly mobile, then all of a sudden you're creating infinitely more value and then more stickiness for the product as well. And, and part of that kind of goes back to the core of your book, um, you know, stepping aside from just Grubhub specifically, but just more in terms of your journey as a founder and, and an executive um, at more than one startup at this point. Um, is the values-based approach about how you think through these pieces. And I, and I just wanted to, to get a sense of when you tell us a little bit about the, the company that you founded um, since leaving and that B Corp designation, which, as you said a moment ago, really does speak to if you want to value the restaurants and build products that, that work for them and help them thrive, do that and be committed to that from a stakeholder capitalism perspective. A B Corp designation sort of creates the architecture for that to happen, but it also requires a thoughtful founder such as yourself and a thoughtful team that buys into that as well. What have you found you can do differently with all of the learnings of what you approach at Grubhub in this next venture and this next endeavor to be more intentional with your values? Yeah, after Grubhub, I spent a lot of time thinking about impact businesses. And and the definition that I really like about impact businesses is, is when you pick a business model and the benefit that you create for the community cannot be divorced from the profit that you create. And so it's not a tack on thing. It's it, the two are, are coupled. And so I started, so the business I started is an on-demand handy person service. And it looks a lot like a marketplace. It looks a lot like Grubhub did in a lot of ways, but with a very significant difference, which is the supply side, the people who do the work, they're full-time employees with benefits. They're not contractors. So it's, it's dissimilar to Angie's List or Thumbtack or or any of those companies in the sense that we actually employ the workers. And the reason we employ the workers is the consumer experience. It started with the consumer experience in the home is really terrible. Uh, you, It's just hard to find unless you've got a guy and it's never a woman. It's always a guy because the trades have been very gender exclusive. Um, if, unless you've got a guy, it's just hard to get somebody to come do work in your home. And the root cause analysis was pretty simple. Oh, all the trade schools closed. Of course, it's hard to get somebody. Like the supply is outstripped by the demand. Of course, it's hard to get somebody. And so we thought, well, if we want to tra- create a better consumer experience in the home, what if we just increased the supply? What if we hired people full-time, trained them from scratch to be handy people, and then we created a great experience in the home? But we didn't come on that business, come to that business model by accident. We were looking for a business model. Me and the and there was there was three other folks who were all in the first like fifty or so, fifty to sixty people at Grubhub, and we we were looking for a model where oh, like the benefit to communities is the profit model, and that's what we found. Like we found this business. It's annoying consumer experience. We can make the consumer experience better. 
we can do it in a way that that helps. And so in the corporate charter, so to answer your question about how B Corps help with this, uh, in the corporate charter, it, it says we exist for two reasons, to create shareholder value and to increase the diversity and skill of tradespeople in the communities we serve. And that second thing is not a means into means to an end. It's an end in and of itself. We can do that as a re, as as our reason for existing as a company. And by the way, it does create great profit. And it's it's not it's it actually is not a, like a charismatic or like passionate founder about this that's really going to carry that. It's called mission. Like there's this concept of mission lock. It's embedded in the in the in the chart of the business, and then we say it to every potential employee. We say it to every potential investor, and so the people who are coming to the company and staying at the company, the work, the people who do the work, they're 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 into this idea, and so the the idea will then continue on after I'm no longer at the company for whatever reason, like hit by a beer truck or whatever, or 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 if I'm in a bike lane and there's a Grubhub delivery driver parked there, which still drives me crazy. And that might be part of the necessary evil I created, but um, yeah, I, like it, that's it's about creating these concepts of mission lock and getting buy-in and getting people, uh, getting like-minded people to work together, and that creates resistance to the inevitable decay of any mission statement. That's completely fair, and it, it's fascinating that um, for those of you who are familiar with the business models of some of the um, flexible work platforms in which to shore up a massive amount of supply in real time and, and, and taper it off depending on the amount of demand of the day. Oftentimes flexible workers who are part-time or independent um, can hop on and off the platform at any given time, which obviously defines aspects of um, certain business models we've talked today, but you've decided to go full-time with the workers on your platform. And it sounds like the second tenant is specifically to train them up to offer um, the skill sets from their customer demand side. Can, can you just reflect a little bit about for anyone that uh, any platform company or any founder that has um, a bench of workers on its platforms that maybe aren't necessarily a worker, a working class that is uh, coders or marketers or kind of white collar professionals as we see it. What do you see as like the the biggest challenge of training up those workers? Do you feel that it's your platform's job now because they're full-time employees or because you want to upskill them to heavily invest in apprenticeship programs or heavily invest in workforce development programs? Or do you just see that as a feature of, of how to get the job done for customer demand? Yeah, I mean, that's the first product we had to create was a training curriculum and program that worked in a, in a, a high high ROI way that where where we got people out into homes and starting to do work early in the training program and doing on the job training. Because ultimately what we did is we said, well, we'll take on the risk of idle time. We'll take on the, the, the margin risk because we pay people whether or not they're busy. And so, uh, and so the risk is now on us instead of on the independent contractor to stay busy. And so we have to keep them busy and we have to get them trained up and we have to get them skills very rapidly so that they, so that we can keep them busy. And so what we've essentially done is we've traded, um, you know, we've traded gross margin, like we make a smaller gross margin because we have higher cost W2 employees. Uh, but what we've, we've done that, but we can then charge a premium for the product because the quality, the quality of the product is higher and we have higher retention. And so people say things like, oh, a handy person business, that's really episodic. You get it like once a year and like, no, our customers use us 12, 13, 14, 15, 18 times a year because the quality of the experience is so good. And so what we've done is we have we don't have the same revolving door CAC and consumer acquisition issues that some other companies have had in the past, 
but it costs us more, right? It, it, like we, we made that trade off on purpose. Um, but ultimately it's a better quality product for the consumer. And so we're, we're comfortable with paying more for the actual, for the actual labor supply. And we pay well, like we're not, we're not paying top bottom dollars. We're, we're paying well because when you train people, you also want to retain them, right? So, so it's important to pay them well in that case. And so we've changed where the risk of the business is. It's not on consumer acquisition. It's not on repeat purchase rate. It's not on consumer sentiment. It's, it's on idle time, the risk, the risk of, of margin. Like we can't have people sitting around. Um, by the way, I feel strongly that this same model could be applied to the food delivery space. Like I think one of the ways that you can dr drive a better product is if you had full-time drivers that were employees of the company who only worked for your company, who delivered, deliver, I'm not trying to go for a pun here, but delivered like a better experience to the consumer. It It's simply a trade-off. It's not so expensive that you can't do it. It's You have to think about where the trade-offs are, like CAC for gross margin, things like that. That's that's fascinating take actually, because um, uh, for, for anyone that has ever tried to use a platform on say Super Bowl Sunday to get you know beer or pizza delivered to the house, um, or tried to use it on a random Tuesday morning, there does seem to be a difference across, I don't want to speak to Grubhub specifically, but across all the app platforms where chances are you can probably see more action on that Super Bowl Sunday, um, uh, and it might be easier to get more of a courier to get to your house or a delivery driver to get to your house quickly, whereas on a Tuesday morning where there isn't too much demand on an average basis, there might be less customer demand. And so that ability to kind of adjust the flywheel of consumer demand to, to labor supply um, oftentimes is defended in the independent contractor model as saying that to, to have those short-term shifts and to, to, to shore up supply and, and turn it off, being able to have a flexible worker is a lot easier for a platform that, than a shift worker um, in, a, in the way that you're describing on your current platform. But, but you're saying that that can be toggled across. I think that's a red herring because I think that you still have to manage demand versus supply. And, and wherever the people are trying to order, their, whether it's a handy person or food delivery, where, where the demand is coming, you have to match the supply to it. So you have to do work to motivate people to work at that time. The, the difference, I think, is that for the worker, the, a gig platform provides convenience and flexibility. Flexibility, right? In, in a, especially in a world where flexibility is hard to come by in employment models. That's really valuable. And it's especially true if it's a skill that you don't need to be trained for, like driving, because you already know how to do it, right? What, what I'm trying to provide with this company is consistency, right? And consistency turns out it's really important uh, for a lot of reasons. You know, in the construction industry, a lot of cities, what happens is people get laid off uh, in like October or November and then get rehired in April or May or June. And they make a lot more money per hour during the, during the months when they're busy. But it also means it's really hard to keep health insurance, right? Because you, you're not full-time employed for a long period of time. And so there's, there's trade-offs from flexibility versus stability, like stability. And I, and I'm aware that I'm creating a stability platform in an environment where a lot of people are offering flexibility. So that's a differentiator for me, right? It's if everybody did this, then, then I might think about flexibility as a more, more beneficial, but right now in the food delivery space, there is no, there is no, um, there's no consistent and and stable work that you can do if that's the work you want to do. It's all about flexibility. And so I think giving people those choices actually can be an advantage. So that, that you know, between um, building that entire company um, that so many of us rely on and, and use daily um, to before founding this, sec this second company, 
um, there was quite a journey that you had personal um, and physical in which uh, I, I think that I'm like a, an adept bike rider because I'll like get on a city bike in where I live and, and squire all over town. But but you actually went three to four thousand miles um, uh, across the country uh, making a, a bit of what felt like randomized stops. But as you reflect on in the book, nothing about those experiences, those moments, those reflections were random. They seemed pretty poignant um, and reflective in, in kind of how you view the world today and how, how you reflected on your journey as a startup founder. When you left Grubhub, did you know that you were going to get on a bike right away? Or walk us through how you got to that and what that experience was. Oh, man, I was planning that trip for like six months, <laughs> you know, when I was waiting yeah. for the IPO, like, I definitely was looking forward to it. And, um, and, and for me, it was, it, it was, you know, it's, it's, it's stressful to start a business and run it all the way through an IPO, right? You do put a lot of hours in, there's a lot of personal sacrifices you do. And I want it. And, and it turns you into, it turns me into an angry person. I like, I, I just was less patient. Uh, I was quicker to snap at people as a result of that stress, um, which isn't who I think of myself as my core as who I am, but I wanted to get back to being that person. So for me, um, it was really important to go do that. And also I really wanted the strong contrast of I'm just riding through town. I'm staying in, I have my tent on the, on the bike. Like I'm just staying in random campsites. Like I'm just taking a bike ride across the country, which after like private jets and like investment banks and the IPO is a very strong contrast. And I really enjoyed the contrast. And I talk about some of those contrasts in the book. But, you know, what seems like it's accidental and what seems like it's random uh, is is not that it's it's actually experimental. And and I talk about this in the book a little bit about how when you're trying to innovate, the path from A to B is not a straight line unless you get extraordinary. Even if you get lucky, it's not a straight line. It's more like a drunken stumble. And and because of because of that, you have to experiment. You have to be willing to try things that might or might not work. And if you're going to try things that might or might not work. You have to be willing to quit them if they're not working. You have to have, you know, this is called sunk cost thinking. Like you have to really try hard at things you're trying. And then if they don't work, you got to bail on them, even though you put all this work into them. And, and if you have a commitment to doing that, then it frees you up to, to innovate. It frees you up to experiment because you know that you're not going to get stuck too long going down a path that's not working. But it does give the appearance in hindsight of a bit of like, Boy, you really tried. You were all over the place. Like you tried a bunch of things. Like yeah, that we were experimenting. We were innovating. We we're trying to create value. And, uh, and yeah, so so the the bike trip was great. I got to decompress. Um, I learned some things about myself. I learned some things about the country. It was interesting to ride through small town America. America um, really feeling the effects of globalization. But pre you know the two thousand uh, pre the pre the election where Trump uh, um, took the presidency and. Um, it was interesting to just see like, oh, wow, there's a, like, there's a lot of anger here that I don't see in, in Chicago in the big city. And, um, and so there was just a lot of things that I reflected on. And then the other thing that I really reflected on a lot in the book is, um, just the difference between independent businesses in small town, like in, in, in vibrant small town, like main streets and what happens like when a Walmart shows up a mile away on the interstate and sort of sucks the life out of the vibrant downtown or worse yet a Walmart doesn't show up and like the mine shuts down and like the economic, like underpinnings of the, of the city, like leave. Um, and it's, it, it's, I saw countries that were, I saw cities that were vibrant. I saw cities that were ghost towns. Um, and it was just really interesting to see it 10 miles per hour across, across a three month period. 
I, I can I can only imagine and, and that that last reflection about how foods and scents and cuisines and storefronts make up the the vibrancy of what we consider home, right? For for wherever home is for all of us is, is very top of mind, certainly when you're writing through it and certainly when you're writing through um, the country like you were, but certainly even more top of mind now when we think about making sure they all have their fair shot at, at um, clawing back after a, pan- a really challenging pandemic that was certainly hard for independent restaurant operators. And, and yeah. I, I, I wanted to, to, um, to kind of uh, pause on that point because um, the, the challenges of anyone that might be an independent owner operator or a startup founder, they're certainly not the same. I don't want to conflate the two, um, but you reflect on a pretty cool, pretty, pretty fascinating path in the book in which, um, which for, for everyone, by the way, who hasn't had a chance to, to read through it yet, go get it right now while you're on this uh, session, because it's absolutely hilarious and, and very well written. Um, by the way, the name of it is Hangry, <laughs> so you can go get it. <laughs> Yes, the name of it is Angry. Good plug. Um, Mike <laughs> Evans is on message. Um, I am not. But, you, you know, you mentioned that you start off with this zip code problem um, in which when you pick up, you know, you're hungry for a pizza, you're hangry for a pizza, you, you look in the yellow pages once upon a time, and you don't know if that, that specific restaurant delivers into your neighborhood. You try and get beyond that. You have to go access U.S. government data uh, from the census, which is, you know, obviously not, not the most artfully packaged. And that takes some designing on top of that data to figure out your your first early, early, early prototypes before you even have your first customer. Um, you eventually, with your co-founder, um, sell to your first customer at $140. Um, then eventually you quit your job um, to, to do this full time. And the reason I'm mentioning this story and how we think about what energizes us in communities, whether it's our, our town square, our local restaurants, the things that give us passion, that give us a sense of purpose is really important. It's an important thread throughout the entire journey of this book. And because the Commonwealth Club is located in the cradle of Silicon Valley, it's really important to a lot of other founders that might be listening to you, wondering what kind of gumption, what kind of audacity, what kind of um, almost foolishness you need to, to be so hungry so as to think that like you're solving one problem. And actually, if you write more code, you could solve a litany of other problems when it comes to accessing food. Can you talk to us a little bit about now having done this at least a couple of times over um, what it was like to have that audacity at the launch? And and you mentioned, and I'll, sh- I'll shut up by after saying this, you mentioned a conversation that's really beautiful with your partner at the time. She comes home and and you say, hey, uh, I think I'm going to quit my job and then I'm going to work on this this project, grow up full time. And without blinking, um, she's supportive. And not everyone maybe has that instantaneous support, um, but buried in that story was also a conversation you had had to make sure that you're making ends meet, that you're able to stretch the dollar further, balance student loans, as you were mentioning. So I was just kind of curious in those early, early days of being a founder to where you're at now, sometimes me might be hard for people listening to think like they have the, the ability, the moxie to get that shit done. And I'm curious what your view or your reflection would be to them, given that you too were in a similar position. Yeah, it it's uh, creating a startup, like creating a product that that solves a problem that no, like it's it's an act of er- supreme arrogance because what you're saying is, I see this problem and I can solve it, and nobody else has solved it, and I can solve it better than any of them, and I'm going to do it, and uh, and so it takes just this level of arrogance to to be able to just say that about yourself, but also doing it successfully takes a level of humility to be able to listen to your customers, to listen to the people around you, to have board members who point out your blind spots. 
And those two things are intention for the entirety of, of running a business. And, uh, and so I think that, I think that the, that first moment, the start moment, uh, it's rife with both of those things. Should I, shouldn't I, I want to do it. I, you know, this is a good idea. I kind of hate working for another person. I really would rather just be my own boss, like all of these things. And, but like, oh, I've got obligations and not everybody can, can afford to, 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 they don't have life circumstances that allow them to just not earn, for example, like I didn't have kids at the time. And that was, that made it a little easier for me to make that choice. Um, and yet, uh, the reality that I think is true is that Every, all the stuff that you can learn about how to run a business, how to create a startup, all, all of the things you learn over the course of, I've done it for two, two decades, it all totals up to 49% of success. 51% was starting, simply starting, selling that first customer, which by the way, Matt did, not me. I didn't sell the first customer. And I, and I had a rude awakening in the first three weeks after I quit my job when I could not sign up a restaurant. And I ended up in, board, in, in Borders reading a selling for dummy selling for dummies book, trying to figure this out. Uh, cause I was hungry, but, but because I started, because I quit, because I took the risk, I was like metaphorically hungry, but I was literally hungry. Like I needed food. So I needed to sell. And so, uh, and so that drove me to learn those things. And so, I mean, my, my advice is start, go for it. Don't overthink it. Like this, the, the plan, the narrative that you have to go get an MBA and that you're going to write a business plan and then somehow friends and family money is going to show up, which I still don't know where that money comes from. And like a venture capitalist is just going to give you millions of dollars. Like, I don't, that's not the typical way that people start businesses. It might be the typical way that Stanford grads start businesses in Silicon Valley, which is a very small percentage of businesses started in the history of mankind. Right. So, um, and so I, I think that there's, um, I think there's a lot to this idea of just start and just start creating a product for a customer and see if you can sell someone on your, on your idea, on your product, see if you can get somebody to take a chance on you. Mike Evans is the founder of Grubhub and an author of the new book, Hangry, a startup journey. Just a reminder that if you have questions, um, you can type them into the YouTube chat and we will call those. Um, one, which is really important that we should have talked about at the very beginning, Mike is pizza. There's a lot of pizza referenced in the book, certainly in the journey. Certainly, it's I love pizza. Yeah, I tell us about pizza. that. Tell us, is there such a thing as a perfect pizza out there, and and how do you approach pizza? That, that's that's a, a question from our audience. Yeah, I mean, pizza is not one. It's not a thing. It's not even a cuisine. It's like 14 cuisines. And there's probably a perfect pizza within each of the 14 cuisines. But there's, but you know, there's, there's like the hungover pizza. There's like the, the, the really high end Neapolitan, like, you know, the thin crust pizza. Like there, there's, there's the stuffed pizza. There's the New York pizza. There's a Detroit, like so many different categories. And so you can be the best within your category, but I don't think that there, it's apples to it's apples to oranges to compare like a New York pizza to a Chicago style pizza. I happen to have a preference for New York pizza over Chicago style pizza, which being a Chicago native like is blasphemy. But uh, but yes, but if I if I was forced to like make a claim of like my favorite pizza restaurant, uh, it, it's JB Alberto's. It's like a mile from my house. I didn't actually have to start Grow Hub. I could have just ordered from them every night. Uh, and so, but I didn't know that until after I started Grow Hub. So I mean, it's part of this whole experimental nature, I guess. That's amazing. I have 14 cuisines within a single pizza pie. That is, 
uh, both poetry and stated like a true diplomat in that answer. Um, I, I am curious, one more audience question that we have is, um, you know, you're just reflecting on startup culture and, and the, the realities of it and some of the misperceptions of what it could actually look like. Um, what has the startup culture been like in Chicago um, as, as you've seen Grubhub's journey? You know, the, a lot of um, a lot of regions want to be able to claim that they are a cluster and a centrifugal force, or sorry, a gravitational force on venture dollars and startup talent and, and starting their project there. Um, obviously, the Bay Area has been has been keen on that for a while, but um, Chicago, Boston, New Orleans, Atlanta, all sorts of like Colorado flyover regions have all kind of grown in that space too with their own sea legs. But how do you reflect on it in Chicago specifically? I get so annoyed at the obsession of comparing different startup hubs because I think it's like not a relevant question for a start. It, it is relevant in the sense of like, which startup hub is better is almost the same question as like, which of the 14 types of pizzas is the best because there are different advantages in different places. So the, so the advantages in Chicago um, are the, the employees that, that I've worked with are, have a huge amount of staying power. People don't quit here. Software engineers stay for six, seven, eight, nine years at a company, right? That's a huge advantage in terms of being able to develop product, right? Another huge advantage is all like almost all the CPG companies, all the consumer product good companies are here. So the amount of talent for marketing and branding is very high, right? And there's another thing, which is if you if you prove it works in Chicago, you've proved it works in the cross section of the entire United States. If you prove something works in San Francisco, all you've proven is early adopters love it. And so like there's advantages to doing things in different places. There's advantages to doing things in, in LA in, in the entertainment space or, um, you know, or something related to, you know, movies or to music. Right. And so, um, I think there's an element of matching, matching what your startup is with like where the advantages are. Um, I mean, a fixer, so we're a, we're a PBC, we're a public benefit corporation, we're a certified B Corp and, um, we've never had an office worker quit. Like so we're on year six of the business. And we have, we're at a 100% retention. So like, there's something powerful about that. Like the problems we're solving, like people know the whole history of it and it's, it's really powerful. And so I, you know, I think that, um, so I usually sort of avoid the question of which startup hub is better and say, well, I mean, I created a multi-billion dollar business in Chicago. Like usually I can be like, what have you done? Like, but like, yeah, I mean, it, it works here. It works. It works in a lot of places. And, and in a way that that is sort of the not to be overly hokey about it, but that reflection right there, uh, which is a great answer, by the way, um, it, it is very much reflective of what you notice both on the bike ride and what you notice both in the building and eventually public offering of Grubhub, which is that our, our cities, our communities, our restaurants, our localities end up being such a petri dish of so much culture, so much talent, so much quirkiness and eccentricities. And if you can harness that, what's happening in the analog world and create value through some sort of digital intersection or, or tool or product, then you can really honor the, the core of, of what that community is about, as opposed to um, needing to paper over it with something that is seeking to disrupt the way that the what defines a community defines a community to begin with. So um, I respect that that answer is consistent with, with the with the heart of, of uh, Mike Evans's brand of diplomacy, but also with with the thread that we see throughout the book. Once again, Mike Evans, thank you so much for joining us. The book is called Hangry, A Startup Journey. 
Um, really encourage everyone watching to, to go get it right away. And we'd love to thank the, uh, the audience for tuning in and participating live in the first place. Mike, maybe before we close out, curious if you just have any reflections um, on what it was like to actually write this book and put after such an epic journey, not just in building a company, but even on your, your legs riding across the country, what motivated you to put it down on paper and, and, and why should others go out there and read about it? Yeah, the whole reason I wrote the book was if I can convince 10 people to think about the intentionally about the impact that that they're going to have on the world as they create a thing, as they create a new thing, and they're intentional about that change, then the book is a success. And so that was that was why I wanted to put the ideas down. Also, I'm trying to like entertain people. I think it's a pretty funny book. Sure. And so uh, and so that was why I wrote it is um, I wanted to create a piece of art because, you know, writing is art and and uh, and wanted to educate and to entertain. So that's why I wrote it. That's awesome. Um, I, I can say that I am not naturally a funny person, but um, I found myself laughing throughout. I wish I could have come at you with that same level of wit in this conversation, Mike, but I appreciate you indulging me on, on our range of questions um, across policy impact and, and the future of the, the on-demand space and being a startup in this country. So thank you so much, Mike. Um, we should do it again soon when you write the next one. Sounds great. I'm excited. Thank you, everybody. Have a good evening. You've been listening to a podcast of Inforum from the Commonwealth Club of California. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live or online events at commonwealthclub.org slash Inforum. And join us again soon for another podcast from Inforum. You never know who you'll meet.